Open your Bibles to uh, Romans 4. Last time we read it all, I think this time I'm going to try to whittle it down so when the reader comes up here I'll point out what we'll read. <laughs> um, it's fascinating, we're doing one sermon on Romans. Now we did like three or four on Romans 3. Uh, that's just the way it goes. And then we're going to do um, probably three or four sermons on Romans 5. And then we're going to be done with Romans for this semester. We'll do some other kind of stuff in the late spring and summer. And then we're going to pick Romans up again in the fall. And we're going to focus on 6 through 8. And then particularly what's on everyone's mind and everyone's heart when you hear the wonders of justification. Well, what does that mean for the Christian? How does a Christian grow? What's sanctification all about? Well, Romans 6 through 8 is going to tackle that. It's going to apply the gospel to your growth as a Christian. So the fall will we'll spend really probably about 20-something sermons in two chapters. Isn't that amazing? So we're going to like almost resurrect or channel Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in Romans. Cannot imagine. All right, here we go. When I was in campus ministry, I was at, my assignment was Brown University. I watched an unchurched student take two years to become a Christian. So two years, this, this unchurched student would come to weekly meetings of college students who would hear the word of God, do funny skits about the word of God, uh, sing the word of God. Two years of this particular student going to a small group Bible study with eight other students where they could investigate more intensely and discuss and chew on foundational truths of Christianity. Two years of personal appointments with this student making direct contact with Christianity in their life where they needed it, where their issues were, where their doubts were, where their questions were. What about the Bible? What about the resurrection? What about Christians? They're so messed up, they, I don't even want to be a Christian. Those kind of topics would come up. And after two years of all this, he became a Christian. Now he's a senior, and two years have gone by of him being a Christian. And I'll never forget uh, his words when he said to the group at large, it was a kind of, the seniors could give a, like a parting grace gift to the other students that are here, just exhorting them to trust Jesus or whatever. And this is what he said, I'll never forget. He said, you know, before I was a Christian, my life was easy. When I became a Christian, my life became hard and complicated and conflicted. Sometimes I feel like I've gotten worse, not better, end quote. Yeah, that was a great way to end our high of the seniors spurring on the rest of the campus, right? All the other campus ministers were like, <laughs> I kind of liked it because I like, there's a little reality there, isn't there? Michael Horton, a popular theologian, author, and seminary professor, he has friends in Dallas that Nancy and I became friends with, so we have mutual friends. Well, Horton and these friends have a pastor friend, and they were rocked several years ago when this pastor friend ends up taking his own life. And he left behind a wife, uh, three young children, two, two with special needs. Michael Horton did his funeral. You know what the topic of his, his message was? When Christianity doesn't work. What do you do when Christianity doesn't? doesn't work for you? What do you do when your beliefs and life collide? What do you do when you feel like God's hurting you and hurting those you love? 
What do you do when it feels like your life's getting worse, not better? What do you do when you are tired of this struggle between being a saint on one side and the chief of sinners on the other at the same time? What do you do? Well, Paul says, jump into Romans 4 and I'll show you what to do. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, Landon, here's what we're going to do. You're going to do Romans 4, 1 through 12, okay? And then you're going to go to, well, actually, let's go to uh, Romans 4, 1 through 8, and then go 13, then go 16 to the end. So 1 through 8, 16 through the end. Thanks. Eight. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and who calls and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, bro. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and open our hearts. Jesus, we thank you that you right now are interceding that you are at the right hand of the throne of God. And God the Father, we thank you that you're king and ruler over all. And we ask, we ask for you to glory, glorify your name, that we would glory in you, and we would grow in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, where are we in Romans right now? All right, we had Easter. We looked at that word propitiation for Easter. Where are we in Romans? What have we done? What have we accomplished? Well, here's what we've accomplished. We've accomplished 64 verses of doom, 118 through 320, and we survived. So you can look at the person on your right, the person on your left, and you could say, we should have t-shirts. We survived Romans 118 through 320. What happened there? Well, those passages were designed to build the need for the gospel, to build the need for justification. That passage is there were showing that there are two ways that people try to build their life, two ways to try to live a life, Two ways 
to which we pursue happiness and fulfillment and freedom and human flourishing. One's a religious way. One's an irreligious way. But both ways are salvation by creation ways, not salvation by creator ways. And Paul is after 64 verses of doom saying that you and I have a tendency to be either the religious person or the irreligious person. But regardless, we're all trying to pursue salvation in some manner, in some strategy, in some way. And if we're by religion or irreligion, it's a salvation by creation. And so his goal is to lead us into verse 19, which is an actual spiritual state called silence. Remember in the Greco-Roman world, the accused, the defender, when he was before the court and when he was done trying to use his words and his heart to defend himself, to prove his innocence, to justify his existence, he would put his hand over his mouth as a sign of silence. What all of those 64 verses of doom are trying to do is to lead you and me into, into verse 19 to go like this. To no longer try to justify our existence. To no longer try to be our own savior. To no longer pursue a creation by salvation strategy. But move into salvation by creator and that's 321 through 26. So we spent some time in there, right? And that's where Paul unpacked the wonder of justification. The good news that God actually makes a legal loving relationship with himself based on the work of another. That God forms this legal, loving acceptability and righteousness based on the acceptability the righteousness, the performance of Jesus himself. It's incredible good news that Jesus actually does what needs to happen for you to be an okay person before God, before yourself, and before other people. For you to actually find yourself. For you to experience freedom and flourishing. For you to to be right. Shalom. Shalom in your universe, right? And it's free. That's what's amazing, right? It's free. Verse 24, it's by grace. It's a gift. It's free to us. Justification comes free to us. But does it come free to God? And the answer was no. And we found that in two words. Two words showed us that those justifications free to us, it's not free to God. What are those two words? Do you remember? What's the first word? Redemption. And that's in verse uh, 24, and then in 25, the other word's propitiation. What did redemption say? Redemption was saying that you're set free by the payment of a price. We're set free from the doom of 64 verses because a price was paid. What's the price of redemption? Propitiation, that's that other big word. So you're making the connections here. God's own blood. In other words, Jesus took the doom of the 64 verses on our behalf so that we wouldn't and don't have to. So Jesus did it. Now we jump into 27 through 31, and here's the first application of justification. What does a gospel life look like? What's the first thing a gospel life looks like? If you get justification in your life, and it's doing its work in your life, what happens to you? What kind of change on the spot should we expect? And Paul says, you know what you should expect? The need to build yourself up ends. 
the need to try to construct your own confidence ends. Silence. You don't have to justify yourself anymore because Jesus justifies you. You're now a free person and has all kinds of implications. That's application number one. What's application number two? Chapter four. If we really get justification, if it's really moving into our minds and our hearts, it's gonna do something to us. What's it gonna do? That's where we are right now. What Paul is doing in chapter four is he's using Abraham and David. He's saying this, look, justification isn't new news, it's ancient news. It goes all the way back to the founder of Israel, Abraham. And it goes all the way up to the highest heights of spiritual peaks in all the Old Testament, David. And therefore, it's every little nook and cranny and rock in between them. Justification is ancient news. Notice verse 23 and 24. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Do you see that? That's incredible. So what we're about to look at in Romans 4, you know what that means? Everything that happens in Romans 4, everything that happened to Abraham, everything that happened to David was for him, for them, yes, and for you too. God had his eye and his heart on Abraham and David and his eye and his heart on you at the exact same time. Romans 4 was meant to reach Abraham. It was meant to reach David. And it was meant to reach you today. That's pretty cool. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, Abraham's, but for ours also. What does this mean? This means the Bible is living that it's alive with divine power and divine life. This means that when you open the Bible, it releases heaven on you. Not just to the original hearers, the participants, the Abrahams and the Davids, and not just to the original hearers, the first people that got the letter that was being written to a specific audience, but also now, you and me. The Bible breaks into our lives. The Bible speaks reality even right now. So how does God want to reach you in Romans 4? That's the second application of justification. Here's the answer. I'm going to give you the the nice, theological, tight, didactic answer that you can write in your Bible and always remember forever and ever. Verse 20, here it is. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. What's the answer? Justification strengthens your faith in God. Got it? That's the proposition. Now... Let's see that. Let's experience that. Let's enter into the heart of that. Are you ready? How does justification strengthen your faith in God? There are three answers in this text. Here's the first one. By helping you get over yourself. By helping me get over myself. Look at verse two. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Here's what Paul is doing. Paul is creating this ridiculous picture of Abraham 
standing in the presence of glory, God himself, or he's standing in the presence of a God who's full of infinite wonder, where there's no borders and there's no bottom and there's no boundary and there's no ceiling to the wonder of God. Limitless wonder, limitless light, limitless life, limitless majesty and greatness and awe and incomparableness and limitless worth where the intrinsic value and worth of God's being explodes and fills the whole universe, the heavens and the earth, and can't be contained so much so that the Bible just describes his worth in such a way that his feet sit on what he creates. The rest of him, who knows where that stuff is. Limitless worth. No bottom, no ceiling, no borders, no limits to the worthiness of God. And here is Abraham, and here's what Paul's doing. And here is Abraham saying, God, do you see how I obeyed you over here? And do you see how I resisted evil over here? And do you see how I loved well over there? Boasting about what he's done. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. And that's the point. Because we need to get over ourselves to boast and try to construct our own confidence and build ourselves up when you're in the presence of God is absolutely impossible and it's absolutely ridiculous. So we need to get over ourselves because we don't have anything to boast. Well, what are we supposed to do then? Look at verse three. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now here's what we're to boast about. Okay, so here's where you put your security in. Here's where you're supposed to put all your hope in. Here's where we're supposed to say, listen, I want to find meaning in life. I want to I feel meaning in life. And Paul says, go feel it in verse 3. I want security. I want security down to the depths of my bones. I want to be a safe person. I want to be a free person. I want to be comfortable in my own skin. I want to pursue life, and I want to pursue it with gusto and energy. I'm tired of being depleted and drained and exhausted by life. He says, go to verse 3. Jump in. Remember that great Syrian general, Naaman, in the Old Testament? Remember what he had to do to be healed? And he was not very happy about it. Because he wanted to do something great, because that's his DNA, and that's his identity, and that's his makeup. And you remember what Elijah said? Elisha said, go, go dip yourself three times in the Jordan. And he's like, No, that's an insult. What you and I need to do is take our leprous hearts and our leprous lives and dip them into verse 3 and be healed. It sounds like the most ridiculous thing I can say to you, and yet it heals you. Because you're thinking and I'm thinking, no, I want to do something great. Is there a verse for sell us to do something great? Here it is. I want you to look at the word counted or credited. It starts there in verse 3. It's used 11 times in chapter 4, so it's a big deal. It's an accounting term. It means to credit or to count or to confer a new status on something that was not there before. Any of you ever done the option to lease to buy your car? Some, some of you guys have done that. I know my dad's done it. 
because I got that truck when it was done, right? Which is a great way to do it, by the way. Um, but you know what happens? You're, you're making payments and you're leasing or renting it. And then somewhere down the line, you decide, you make a decision, you say, I, I, I want to buy this car. I want it to be mine. And you go to the person, you make those arrangements, and now you start making payments, but those payments are not to rent it. Those payments are now to own it. You've been conferred a new status of ownership from an old status of leasing. To be credited and accounted is that you are conferred a new status of righteousness. And here's the catch. It's a new status of righteousness. It's a status that wasn't there before. You didn't have it before. But it was credited. It was conferred. A new status was transferred to you and to Abraham as righteousness. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work or boast, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is so important, and it's going to offend us. God doesn't justify good people. God does not justify good people. Only evil people are justified. Only messed up people are justified. Only ungodly people are justified. So if you're wondering this morning, golly, the qualifications for Christianity are just like, I mean, who can become a Christian? And then once you become one, how do you maintain this thing? And I just, I see Sally Saint over there and she's always getting it right. And she gets up at four to pray and she reads her Bible every day. And which is good stuff. I, good stuff. You can do that more power to you. But I follow Dr. Hannah's advice. If you set your goals low enough, you hit them every time. So maybe there needs to be a little adjustment. But here's the qualification. Are you evil? You're qualified to be conferred a new status of righteousness. Are you wicked? You qualify to be counted or conferred a new status of righteousness. Are you messed up? You qualify. So how does justification strengthen your faith in God? It helps you and me get over ourselves. So get over ourselves. Get over yourself. Be healed in the righteousness of another. Not your own. Second, how does justification strengthen your faith in God? By helping you live with yourself. As a pastor, I see this all the time. I feel it in my own life. I see it all the time in other people's lives. It discourages us. It distresses us. It depletes us. It's what most people, why most people struggle with assurance of whether they're a Christian or not. Every time I have a conversation with someone who's struggling, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. And I ask them, well, why do you think that way? Why do you feel that way? It's always this reason. It's never not this reason. It's why most of us go through life, even though confessionally we'll say, listen, I believe that God is good and he's gracious and he's kind and he's loving, but if I was to, 
if I was to pry and, and prick and have an x-ray of your heart and your mind in your feelings and in your thoughts, it's why you feel like God hates you or at least disappointed with you. It's why most of us think that, gosh, there's God's A team and then there's his B team and then there's his bench team and I'm not on the A team, I must be on the B team or I'm on the bench team. What's the it? You know what it is? The incredible tension and the incredible, um, I don't know, distress that comes from being loved and evil at the same time. of being deeply flawed and messed up and righteous at the same time. That, that's a tough thing for a Christian. We're not going to answer it all here. And Paul's going to spend a good three or four chapters indirectly and directly answering that, but he starts it here. I want you to look at verse 6 and 8. Here's how he answers it. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. Notice what David is not saying. David is not saying, blessed are those who do not sin. Blessed are those who avoid sin. He's saying, blessed are those who sin is not counted against him. David is saying, because this is quoted from Psalm 32. Do you remember what the backstory of that was? Remember he commits this adultery with one of his right-hand men? Bathsheba commits adultery, then he conspires, and he becomes a traitor, and then he has him murdered, and then finally becomes aware. He, he becomes aware of what he's done. And he writes Psalm 32, which is what just is quoted here in in Romans 4. David acknowledges that he's a sinner, but don't miss this. And yet he's still blessed. He's acknowledging that he is messed up and deeply flawed and imperfect and an adulterer and a traitor and a murderer and still blessed. How can that be? How can David be sinful and blessed at the exact same time? Answer? Because David's sins are not counted, credited, conferred to him. He still has the credit and the conferred status of righteousness because it comes from someone else's work not his own. And so the real Christian life is a life where you are loved and you are evil at the exact same time. The real Christian life, the real state of a Christian is being deeply flawed and imperfect and lost and sinful, as Luther would say, and righteous and accepted and perfect at the exact same time. 
David's present sins do not erase God counting him righteous. David's present sins, his future sins, his past sins do not erase that he's loved, accepted, forgiven, righteous because of the work of another, because of the performance of another, because of the righteousness of another. So how does justification strengthen your faith in God? It helps you live with yourself. You have to live with yourself. You have to live with this tension. You have to live with the reality that a Christian is at the same time both a saint and a sinner at the exact same time simultaneously for the rest of their life. How do you live with yourself like that? Justification by faith is the only way you're going to live with yourself like that. The only way you can honestly now face who you are And be honest about it. We can be honest with ourselves. You can be an unshockable community. You can actually look at your flaws. You can actually face your failings. You can actually confront those areas that God is working on in your life and not pretend you're better than you are. You can face them. And you can be so bold as to confess them to God and find forgiveness and confess them to others when you need to because you've sinned against them. And not be shattered to pieces because you are sinful and blessed at the exact same time. Having that reality is the only way you are going to be able to face the fact that you're a sinner and safe at the same time. The only way you're going to be able to face the fact and go forward and tell someone, I did sin against you, you're right, I, I, I hurt you, and be, be okay at the same time. It's the only way you're going to be able to pick yourself up and not be crushed by your sin and your failures and your flaws. It's the only way. All right, how does justification strengthen your faith in God? By helping you get over yourself, by helping you live with yourself. Lastly, by helping you live when life doesn't work. Look at verse 18, 19, and 20. In hope, he believed against hope. (laughs) What a great line. This is what's happening. Everything in Abraham's world, everything around him, everything inside of him has no hope in it. But he had hope. Everything coming at him, everything coming out of him had no hope whatsoever, but he still had hope. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith. I mean, here's what we need to see here. This is so important. Faith is not irrational, and it's not unemotional, and it's not non-situational. Abraham is very rational, very emotional, very situated into his place. How? He's rational. He's telling us he has a 100-year-old body, and he's supposed to have a son. He's very rational and he's very emotional and he's like looking at his wife who's also just about her, his age and she's been barren, hasn't been able to have kids. She's infertile, physically incapable of it, ration, feeling. He looks at the impossible place that he's at. 
He reasons it. He feels it. He faces it. In fact, faith actually is the only thing that's able to take everything all in. Living by faith is the only way you can live in reality. Faith faces confusion. It faces painful feelings. It faces impossible situations and circumstances. Faith takes it all in. That's not the issue. Faith takes it all in while looking at God. That's the issue. Faith looks at who God is, verse 17. The God who gives life to the dead. This is absolutely incredible. Abraham is saying, I come to know while looking at God that he's the kind of God that loves to give life where there isn't any. God is the kind of God who loves to go, where is there no life? Because I love to give it there and there. Who doesn't have life? Life. Who is just completely out of their mind? Life. Who's so brokenhearted and so devastated and so crushed they can't even lift their head? Life. That's the kind of God he is. Verse 17, he's the kind of God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. He's the kind of God that when he speaks... His words have power to create what wasn't there. Let there be light. And light said, yes, sir. Let there be a child where there can't be a child. And there's a child for Abraham and Sarah. Let there be righteousness acceptability, approval where there is none. And you're reckoned, you're counted righteous. Faith is not irrational, it's not unemotional, it's not non-situated. Faith is super rational, super emotional, (laughs) super situated. Faith comes in and it says, Give me all the reason, but ultimately reason's going to fail. But faith never fails because faith is rooted in God who is reality. Reason will fail. Reason is not ultimate reality. Reason was designed by God to grasp ultimate reality. Reason was never designed to turn in on itself and say, your reality. (laughs) Get into your mind and try to figure this thing out. That's that's not how it works. Get out of your mind, get out of your thoughts, get out of your reason, and reason over reality, which is God. Then reason works just fine. So feelings fail, but faith doesn't because God is reality, not experience. Situations fail, but faith doesn't because God is reality. Situations are not. And so faith can walk into an impossible place and thrive. Faith can walk into a place where all reason and all limits to our understanding and not getting it and confusion are present and face that reality and still thrive. 
Faith can go amidst the most painful places in the emotions and embrace them and face them and acknowledge them and be real about them and still thrive. So get over yourself. Live boldly with yourself. And live boldly when life doesn't work. How? How do we do this? By faith alone in a Jesus justification. Amen.